There's a story about two seeds. Two seeds that lay in the soil, and one says to the other, I really can't wait. I so want to deepen the roots and break through this shell and have my roots sink so deep into this soil, and I can't wait to, to sprout above the ground and to feel the warmth of the summer sun, to see the spring flowers and for me to blossom, to sense the, the, the colors of the fall and to do it all over again. I can't wait. I, I just, I can't wait. The other seed says, yeah, I'm just not sure if it's, I'm ready. In fact, I'm not sure if I'm ready for the hot, scorching sun and the struggle to compete with other flowers and the, the long winter. In fact, I don't even know if this soil is good enough and I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. And so sure enough, the one seed takes root and blossoms into a great plant and flower. The other one continues to question. And eventually a chicken comes by and eats it. So let's pray and we'll take communion and we'll be done, right? Uh, there's a study, and it's by this PhD out of Stanford, and her name is uh, Carol Dw- uh, Dwyer, or Dweck, Dweck, excuse me, and she talks about this study that she's researched and researched about two different concepts, a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Now, mind you, this is a secular book, but I thought it was very fascinating when we talk about growth. How do we move from A to Z? Uh, the very logo on Amazon, you know, is A to Z. It's this concept of that forward momentum, wherever you're starting from is point A, and to get to that zenith or that end point would be Z. How do we get there? Her study shows, though, that with children in Chicago in the school district, what they started to do was take these tests, and instead of giving them a fail grade that they could not move forward because they were not ready, they didn't put fail. They didn't put letter grades. They put not yet. Fascinating what this study did, that actually, that these students were not so discouraged and would continue to try. There's a not yet concept about inspiring us to keep getting up and moving and growing, but then there's this now, kind of paralyzing concept. It's a fixed mindset. It's, I'm not ready. I'm I'm not ready for all what's going to entail for me to move and to forward grow. She goes through a lot of different areas in her book, but just let me summarize a couple interesting concepts or, or contrast between the fixed mindset and this growth mindset. First, with challenges. The fixed mindset wants to avoid challenges. Rightly so, because a challenge means there's going to be pressure. I'm going to have to try to try something new. Versus the growth mindset, they embrace the challenge. She continues on and says how these both work with obstacles. The fixed mindset gives up easily. Oh, this is too, this is too much. I don't like failing and falling. Boy, the growth mindset, though, is persistent, said, I'm just going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying. Effort. Well, I make effort, and 
the fixed mindset says, this is, this is fruitless. This is a waste of my time. The growth mindset says, this is a path to mastery. This, this is what the valley I have to travel before I move forward. Criticism. Why well, is interesting contrast here? Fixed mindset ignores any kind of criticism, both negative and positive. The one that's the growth mindset says, no matter negative or positive, I'm gonna I'm gonna learn. I'm gonna learn. I'm gonna continue to learn. She continues on this last part, and it says, from others' successes, and this is really revealing. Fixed mindset is threatened. Threatened by those who are moving forward and, and succeeding. They don't want to talk about those people, whether it's defeating to them, discouraging to them, they're jealous. Boy, the growth mindset says, tell me another story. Tell me, tell me another story of someone who's, who's finding hope and who's moving forward. I think this is interesting this morning because I want to start a two-part series this week and next week. That's it. And you are recipients of my long break. And in my long break, we had New Year's. And as I reflected over my spiritual journey, as I started from A, and as I hope that God is growing me to Z, I started to work through some of the seasons of my life. And in the early journey, I used to be hyper-disciplined. Uh, to the point, I think, sometimes there that got negative, where I started to hold my, my disciplines as a, a medal of, of what I've done and in some ways self-righteous, like, oh, you're not doing that? Hmm. And so I, I, I won't say I took a break fully from disciplines, because I've had to have some, but I kind of moved away, and there was this concept for a while, and it's it's a, a pervasive feeling or a sense of conversation in Christian culture today that if we just sit and wait and have enough quiet times and learn more than enough God, won't he eventually just float me and carry me to Z? Won't, won't he just, I just be moved, just so motivated by what he's telling me that I'm going to move and grow? So, Hearing a lot of that kind of thinking, I started to do my, my own study. And I started going from Matthew chapter 4, which is Jesus' first message. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's his first message, and it's not to people who don't know God. It's not for seekers. It's not for people who are lost. It's for those who do. And Jesus is, is completely, radically changing the rules He's not moving away from the Old Testament. He's saying, you just missed the point. He's changing what it means to say, I want you to understand truly what God was after. And so he ends up in chapter 7, which we're going to land on today. But I want to just tell you the observation I made. As I looked through from Matthew chapter 4, do the study on your own, there are not these passages where Jesus says, oh, just sit. Just sit on the couch and wait. Wait till it feels right. Wait till God just inspires you for that moment. Do you know what it is? Instruction after instruction. It, it's as if it's these series of steps and saying, do this and don't do this. You go a couple more verses, it says, don't do this and do this. 
All throughout that whole first message, he is saying instructions. And he's saying, put them into practice. You need to be obedient. This morning, I, I want to push you, kick you, do whatever I have to do to let you know that the Bible sits there as a book of instruction. That if you hope that one day God will, will levitate you out of a great quiet time or a journal entry, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those. And by this morning, me saying that you have to practice your faith doesn't mean that you earn salvation through any of that. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know Christ. You've, you've surrendered your life to him. But now the work begins. And why is it in faith, it's like wrestling people from a couch, that churches are filled throughout the country with people that just continue to sit and wait for a motivating message, for the right song, for the right, convince me, convince me that this Bible verse is something I should obey. And we sit. Yet the Bible is filled with practical examples that we are to take steps. Look at 2 Peter. It says, for this very reason, make every effort. Don't just try. You make every effort. To add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, knowledge self-control, self-control perseverance, and perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and mutual affection love. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are countless verses about this idea that spiritual transformation, yes, when you receive Jesus Christ, he puts in you the Holy Spirit and there's a conviction. But at some point, you have to get off the couch. You have to practice the truth. Let me give you an example. So, so there's, a, there's tons of verses about forgiveness. I'm not fully convinced about forgiveness in certain, certain, uh, certain circumstances, are you? Someone wrongs you in a certain way. Maybe this one is out. There are often instructions that God calls us to stay away from things that we may not agree with, but he says, do it. How many of you remember being a child? <laughs> Some of you are still children. But you remember your parents saying, don't do that or do this. And you remember sometimes, if you could do it without getting smacked, the, the comment, why, right? You wanted to question the authority, and then it was, because I said so. Because <laughs> there's, a, there's a concept there, right, that the parent knows, hopefully, with good intent, more than the child at that point. There are things that I know that, that are going to harm them, or things that I know that they need to begin to practice now that will only help them in the future. It'll help them move forward. Why is it, as Christians, we like to sit on the couch and wait till we're fully bought in? Obedience often means that you're taking steps in things that you don't fully agree with or don't like, but he says you're supposed to. So you forgive that person, maybe the best you can. You say it in words, and maybe it's not even fully in your heart. But something starts to do, change in you, right? And you do it again. And then someone forgives you. 
and you start to experience something and you start to move. Peter does this again. He talks about it again in another passage in 1 Peter. He says, therefore, rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander every, of every kind. Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by, by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's a concept of taking in what God has already told us. It's called obedience. It's called practicing it. I think churches today, and again, why am I, I'm not coming at you, I'm not mad, or there's no secret idea here for me. It's really me wrestling with this reality is I'm finding and realizing I don't grow unless I get up. Unless I sacrifice and it hurts and it's hard and it's persistent and it's a struggle for me and I'm wrestling with it and I'm so far from perfect. But I wrestle with it and the Bible's telling us to do the same. And so church services could be filled with just amazing programs and we could, we could have great ministries, but until we begin to practice... Charles Stanley says it this way, the bottom line in the Christian life is obedience, but most people don't even like that word. I remember the song as a kid, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. And I actually didn't like that song too much, because it just feels so authoritarian. It just feels like you trust and you obey. You know, you're just a mindless robot, right? And in our culture today, we're a good Americans. They're like, hey, inform me, convince me to move. Give me all the facts. We find ourselves like that seed. I don't know if this is all what it's cracked up to be. This morning, if you are a Christ follower, or at least think you are, the scripture is clear. The things you know about God, you're to put into practice. So Jesus teaches this Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 4 to 7, and I went through every time where he instructs to do something or not do something. And there are things this morning I know that, that you're a part of, whether sinful or things that you know that God's calling you to, and he pretty much covers all of them in the Sermon on the Mount. And he doesn't sit there and say, hey, just sit around, my friend, Troy, sit there, I'll, I'll float you, you know, right over to the... Uh, to the end. I'll, I'll just grow you up. It's, it's going to be hard. Matthew 7 is the conclusion of this message, this first message. It's important that we look at firsts because these firsts tend to be very uh, defining moment for Jesus. Uh, he's setting kind of the standard. And so he talks about really what it's all about and he moves into the heart and, and this is about practicing and, and a heart change for us. But he ends up at the very end of chapter 7 with an illustration about building a house. So I want to read this to you in the NIV because I think it's interesting and it, it gives us what we're going to end with, but I want to give you the NIV because we're not going to use the NIV in a moment. I'm going to tell you why. He says, therefore, what's he saying therefore? It's therefore because of all the stuff I told you from chapter 4 till now. He's been preaching. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine 
and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Let me just make a couple observations that will spook you. It spooked me. He's talking to Christians. The one who didn't build their house on the rock is not a lost person or doesn't know God. They both do. Both built a house, so both were building something. We're all building a faith of some sort. You may think that you're, you're sitting back and you're, you're observing and you're not doing much with your faith, but you're building a house of your own. See, we're all building a house. We're all building something. Interesting that this illustration, the storm is close enough, that same storm. So they have to be close in proximity. So we could understand this text to say that Jesus is talking to religious people who all are even doing things that are spiritual. What's the difference? One uses God's plans, the other uses their own. So this morning, I think the the push for all of us is whose plans are you putting into practice in your life? You might be sitting back and saying, "Ah, I debate that sin, I disagree with it, culture's saying different, and so we want to go our own way, and what does the scripture say about that? That's that's not going to be good. That's going to be house on sand. And this morning, I, I want to encourage you that my goal here in two weeks is to help you understand that the Christian walk is not about a bunch of emotion and motivation. It, it will include a heart and emotion, and it will move you, but it's a lot about practice. Coming to Jesus is very different. It's a surrender of your life. It's a brokenness over your sin. It's knowing that he is the only sacrifice that allows you, what, atonement for your sin, that you can now meet a God and have relationship with a God. But at that point... Now the boots get pulled on and you have to live life, the calling to practice the truths of God. This word practice is, again, you could just say it's practice, that's the way it is, but a couple different definitions to act rightly, to do well, to celebrate, to keep. Uh, N.T. Wright says it this way, "If, if we don't put on God's holiness... When we feel like being unholy, then we have guarded our sincerity at the cost of our obedience. We don't put on God's holiness when we feel like being unholy, then we have guarded our sincerity at the cost of our obedience. That's deep. NT can do that to you. Some of people in this room maybe, and I know I've done that, guarded myself a little bit knowing full well I want to use my own plans. Obedience is hard. So Matthew chapter 7, we're going to now go from the top down, and we're going to end up back in this this illustration, but I, I want to use the message. The message is a paraphrased version of the Bible. Some hardcore will say, it's not the Bible, don't use it. Friends, we use commentaries and descriptions of the Greek language, and it's much fuller than ours. The message is a paraphrase. 
It's not a literal translation. What they do is they take one Greek word or phrase and they'll expand in modern language. Eugene Peterson did this. I don't use it necessarily for study, but sometimes the way he writes it strikes me more powerful because it talks to me in today's language. That's why we're using it this morning. I want you to read this with me, not read along with me, but you read it quietly. (laughs) Matthew 7, 1 through 6, don't pick on people. Jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomerang, of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face, and he's obviously, and to be obvious to the ugly sneer on your own, or oblivious, excuse me. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face, when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality, isn't that amazing? All over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your face that you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Don't be flipped with the sacred. Banter and silliness and give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans in trying to be relevant. You're only being cute and inviting sacrilege. What's, what's he saying here? You have to measure yourself. This is, this is probably one of the most toxic things about our spiritual culture today. And many of you have been damaged by the church. And maybe that's, you're here for the first time, you've been here for a few times, and you're just, you're just wait, you're waiting. And I apologize for the big C church, for us being that way. But it largely is because in all of us, this is what we start to do. We start to look at other people don't we? Because that's easy. I might look at other people because it helps me feel better about me. We were just laughing in the lobby. Uh, They said to me, hey, thanks, Troy. When you confess your brokenness, it actually makes me feel better about me. We were laughing about it. Why is it that the failures of others helps us feel better about ourselves? Because we measure. We like to look at the speck in everybody else. This is why churches do this to each other right? Who is a better church? Friends, that's why I won't slam another church. If they're proclaiming the name of Christ, they're still imperfect. And can I just give a news flash for everybody in case you missed it? We are a flawed church. I don't, I don't even, I'm not even joking about that. We're a broken church. You have a flawed and broken pastor. And, and I, I believe we have to recognize that our measure is not to anyone else. It's to do the work in ourselves. And when we start to look at ourselves, doesn't that kind of capture 99.9% of the energy? When we start to look at ourselves and start to evaluate where, where we're at, man, I, I'm not worried about everybody else. I want to encourage them, I want to love them, but I'm not worried about everybody else's sin or disobedience. I'm too hung up on my own. Jesus is saying this, and it's, he uses it the log and speck, remember? Take the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck at a brother's. And quit throwing at everybody else these little trivial things about spirituality. Worry about yourself. Just one more comment about this. God never needed us to guard the truth. He asks us to guard it here, 
but he doesn't need us to fight for him. When he says fight the good fight, he's saying in your own soul, because that's where the battle is. He goes on and says, 7 through 12, don't bargain with God, be direct. Ask for what you need. This is not a cat and mouse hide and seek game we're in. If your child asks for bread, do you trick him with sawdust? If he asks for fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children, so don't you think the God of the universe who conceived you in love will be even better? We so look to things to give us answers. We may look to pastors or teachers or certain messages or even our interpretation of things. But God is saying, go to Him. Go to Him. He'll take care of you. And when He says, stay away from this sexual sin or this, this idea of sexuality, He's He's not because he's trying to be hurtful. He said, that will hurt you. I'm your parent. I'm your creator. I didn't create you for that. When he says you should be about these things and do this, he's saying because I created you and I knew. The Christian faith is about instructions of calling us to live and put on practice. He says, ask him first. Here's a simple rule of thumb, guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets, and this is what you get. This is a great little ending piece, and Eugene kind of captures these verses in different categories as far as how he put them together. I love how he says this. It's You ask God, you're inspecting yourself, and when you do that, it's not about what everybody else is or isn't doing. It's not the McDonald's, right? Everybody, 10 billion people are buying the, is it 10 billion? I don't know how many millions buy the hamburger. doesn't mean it's healthy, right? It's saying when you want people to treat you a certain way or live a certain way, you model it. You model it. This is hard. It's a lot easier sitting back and pointing the finger. It's a lot easier to do that. It's difficult. I've been so convinced of this and so at least moved myself. I've, we brought, I brought up a consultant for our elders to, to, for, for one goal, protecting the church from me. Now, that may freak you out. I'm not a raving murderer or anything like that, so you don't worry. Why would I say that? Because I'm broken and flawed. I have this journey of practicing. And honestly, if it's up to me, to be the Jesus for this church, we're all in trouble. And I also think we have to protect the church from you. How do we do that? We begin to, to work on ourselves. We begin to hold one another accountable to our own practice of the faith. See how easy it is for us to get sideways and start to point fingers about what people are and aren't doing. Then we, we have respectable sins, right, and unrespectable sins, and we like to put those in categories. Well, this is a really bad thing. I'm just gossiping. Well, that's still sin. You know? You got to ask and seek God first. This is where we go to. We don't go, we go to nothing else. And even this morning as I try to give you a, a message here, 
Please don't see me as the all authority on things. I'm not. I'm a struggling, practicing builder, trying to put the plans, trying to get rid of my plans, because those sneak in to my house remodeling, right? Some of my ideas start getting in there, and I'm like, ooh, i got to get that out. He goes on and says through 13 through 20, he says, don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Again, why did I use the message? Because of that. Does that not kick you or what? This shortcut, a nice new book, a nice new idea. And that's where we say, you know, sitting in our faith does nothing until we begin to practice out what we already know. It says, don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. Just because there's a lot of people at community church doesn't make us a great church. Just because a lot of giving happens doesn't make us a great church. Just because we pack half a million meals for the poor in Haiti doesn't make us a great church. What, what calls us to becoming a holy people that reflect him is how we are practicing what he calls us to. So what does he say? Don't fall for that stuff. Crowds of people do. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. Be, aware, or be wary of false preachers who smile a lot. Some of you are wondering why I don't smile. I take this very biblically. I try not to. It's <laughs> a bad excuse, right? Uh, dripping with practice sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off some way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. This, these diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. You want to talk about leaders and, and pastors and in the role I have, this, these verses scare me. Some of you wonder, and you'll ask me about message giving, and, I, and you need to hear, I take very seriously coming up here, and I'm done. I'm done at the end of the second service. You know why? Because I have to bear all. Because I feel responsible if I come up here and start telling you about something that I'm not wrestling through myself, I'm a hypocrite. Imagine you in that role. Every week, no matter what your soul's condition, you have to get up here and, and call people to something, and sometimes you're not doing it. That, that's hard work. That stuff scares me and says, okay, I hear it, God. I have to be about the character in my own life, my integrity in my own life. I have to be wrestling through it, trying to practice those things. This passage here is, in the NIV, it says there's only two roads. There's a narrow road and a, and a wide road. In church this morning, we only have two choices. We're either practicing the faith or we're not. We're either a real disciple of Jesus Christ practicing and on the narrow road, or we're not. We're a hypocrite. There are no middle ground here. And, and I'm sorry if that's offensive to you, and that's not, hopefully I'm not, I'm not pushing you in that sense. It's really what Scripture says. There's, there's not a middle ground. 
You're either practicing or not. You're either on the couch waiting like that seed for a fixed mindset that somehow, some way, you're going to be propelled to some sort of growth and develop in your life. And, the, and we know that definition is called insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. That won't work. That's not biblical. You got to practice. And it's hard, even for me. 21 through 23 says, knowing the correct password. Listen to his version here. I love this. Knowing the correct password saying, master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my Father wills. I can see it now at the final judgment. Thousands strutting up to me saying, Master, we preach the message. We bash the demons. Our, God, our God-sponsored projects had everybody talking in the neighborhood in the city. And do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. Once again, a pastoral passage that goes, ah. I'm not saying this for me. I would, I would love it. You should pray for those who teach because it is a weighty responsibility. But you should also know this applies to all of us. Whether it's in a small group, whether it's at you at your house, you, you, God, the way to God is not just by doing the right things. Remember I said, knowing God is, is, comes through Jesus Christ alone. It's recognizing your sin and your rebellion, our rebellion. Upon that acceptance of that sacrifice given to us by Jesus, we are then included in the family, but then we have family responsibility. You know what that is? It's practice. Jesus said, do it, you do it. He says, don't do it, you don't do it, whether you agree or not. There are no secret passwords to look spiritual. There are a lot of people that do. This is no God. Don't just know about him. Do you know how much people know about God? And, and I think about all that we have in our culture today, from Bibles to internet to even we're laughing. I mean, some of you can pull up, you can pull up Greek text right now on your phones. You, you could do all that, and you're more than welcome to. You could do all that right now. But my question this morning, will we be held accountable for what we know or what we don't know? I believe it's for what he's told us. So much of what you already know isn't being practiced. That's the conviction. Paul says it this way, and, I, and I, I relate to him. Every week, I recognize how much I need Jesus and grace and forgiveness because the things I want to do, I don't, right? The things I don't want to do, I do. And so every week, your pastor, and you may be, I may be alone in this, I struggle in my, my walk of practicing disciplines and pulling on those boots and taking a step and, ah, that was hard and learning sacrifice and really leaning into this idea about knowing God, not just knowing about Him. I can know a lot of answers about God and many people do, but who's practicing? You know, when you have a relationship with somebody, you don't do things to just push all the right buttons in that relationship. You do it out of what? A heart that's overwhelmed. I'm practicing 
because I love this God that's done this for me. He finishes up, now this is Eugene's part of that last part about the home. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They're foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who has built his house on solid rock. When rain poured down, the river flooded, or tornado, or, and a tornado hit, nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who builds his house on the sandy beach. And when the storm rolled in, the waves came up and it collapsed like a house of cards. Do you think we need more insight about the truth of what God's called us? I don't. I, I, I just don't. Do I want to sit under teaching? Yes. Am I con continuing trying to, to read the scriptures? Yes. But friends, I have so much already in front of me that I could be practicing and practicing to stay away from and practicing to do. Don't you? If we want to grow and move from A to Z, God's given us a responsibility to begin to practice, to work the words into our lives. Look at the reaction to the, the masses of disciples that have followed him. When Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this because it was apparent that he was living everything he was saying. That was radically different. He was living it. Isn't that our debate today? Well, they're a hypocrite. I'm not listening to them. Quite a contrast to the religion teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. Friends, as we go this morning to communion, and this is part one, can I urge you and even kick you a little bit? You've got to practice if you want to grow. It means removing things from your life that Jesus said, clearly, don't do this. Your Bible's filled with stuff to say, don't do that. There's a whole other set of things to say, be doing that. And we, like infants, don't fully get and don't have to fully understand, but he says, start it. And if you want to grow this year, because I do, that's, that's why I'm teaching this, because you have a pastor that's going, well, this is what I studied, and it was for me, but guess what? You get to suffer that same study, and I'm giving it to you. Because I realize it's needed for us. we got to practice. As you go to the table, please don't go if you're not willing to put into practice the God's plans in your life. And may the Holy Spirit put a finger on anything in your life that you've ignored. Father in heaven, may we be people that are vigorously and seriously becoming obedient followers of you and practicing the plans you've laid before us. In Jesus' name, amen.